We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Ginny Gentles. She is the director of the Education Freedom Center over at the Independent Women's Forum. Ginny, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much, Emily. Looking forward to our conversation. So folks know I'm also a senior fellow over at IWF and just believe a lot in what you guys do. So Jenny, I want to start. I think this is a good entry point into this broader conversation we're going to have. But just could you start by telling us about the Education Freedom Center? It's a fairly new project of of IWF's. Um, What are you all up to at the center? Well, Emily, as you know, a lot of the women who work at IWF are mothers, and we were impacted very directly by school closures um, during the COVID era. And... um, looked around and and realized some of the theoretical work that we might be doing, the discussions that we're having about school choice and the benefits of school choice, um, really apply not to just small groups uh, anymore, but everyone. The school system utterly failed in its educational mission. It utterly abandoned its educational mission, closed schools, created a learning loss crisis, and refused to open, refused to listen to parents. And even when schools started opening again, uh, refused to get masks off kids, even though it was very clear that uh, children's speech and reading, learning and acquisition were um, severely impacted by by mass, not to mention the impact on their on their social development. Um, So between school closures and masks and then what we were seeing as we looked over the, the shoulder of our of our children into Zoom classrooms, what was being taught, it was very clear that a lot of these schools uh, were, uh, again, abandoning their educational mission, not focusing on academics and instead focusing on um, various ideologies and, in fact, in, uh, seemingly in indoctrinating kids into these uh, ideologies. And so at IWF, we realized, OK, we need to stop just writing op-eds and talking about school choice and educational freedom. And we need to connect what's happened during the COVID era, what's happened with these ideologies having captured the education system um, to education freedom and let mothers, parents know that uh, opening up the school system, creating um, opportunities for families to leave, creating a, a threat to the school districts that families will leave and take their enrollment funding with them if they're not responsible. That has to happen. And so we decided to launch the Education Freedom Center, elevate the voices of of parents, um, celebrate different um, education freedom and school choice initiatives around the country, shine the light on on what's happening with these ideologies in classrooms and on the good news that there are movements like classical education afoot and, and that parents do have very positive options out there. Right, that there are real alternatives um, that allow you to sort of escape a a failing system. And Jenny, if I'm not mistaken, you were fairly involved as a parent in Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia was a hot spot. Like, it's one of those places that always gets excess media coverage because so much of the media is in D.C. and Northern Virginia. But over the course of COVID, there were very real, very newsworthy happenings in Northern Virginia schools uh, as it related to lockdown as it related to health measures. Um, and I know you got involved in some of that. Can you tell us what your experience was like as just as a parent um, trying to deal with some of this? Right. Well, I live in Little Arlington County, which is a small county um, near 
Fairfax and and Loudoun, the two giant Northern Virginia counties that got all of the media attention. But honestly, Arlington really deserved a lot more of the attention and still does, because mm. a lot of these a lot of these problems um, originate in the school districts that are easy to capture and um, in areas where parents just feel like, well, I spent a lot on my on my house. I have an absolutely massive mortgage. Therefore, I'm sending my children to good schools. And so they don't question that these quote unquote good schools are actually doing their job and they don't really pay very close attention or monitor what's being taught and um, and what's happening until the school districts close the schools and refuse to open them um, for well over a year. <clears throat> and so my county, Arlington, was was one of those school districts. Uh, we closed in, in mid-March of 2020, like, like many other areas around the country. And students did not return full time again until fall of 2021. Oh the, school, the school district opened on a very part-time basis for some students in the spring of 2021 over, you know, a year later after closing, um, two shortened days, which is shocking. This is a year of children's life that Mm. was taken from them by a district that did not train their, their teachers on how to deliver education remotely, did not uh, develop a curriculum that could be provided remotely. In fact, in the spring of 2020, I had a middle school student and an elementary school student and um, the middle school student, the then sixth grader was told um, you can keep the grades that you had in mid-March when we closed the schools, or you can do a little extra work, for the rest of the school year and try to get them up. But there was no class. There were no, there was no zoom school in Arlington County. There were no classes for her to log into and there was no incentive to do any coursework because she had all A's. Why, why do more? And so it was up to me as a parent to kind of create and structure her, her academic experience to ensure that she learned something during the rest of the school year. And then, uh, for my elementary student back in that spring, um, I was told, um, I think maybe just work on the, on math and reading with them, but no more than 20 minutes per day um, for my then then third grader, <laughs> which is insane, right? That's insane. Um, and again, you know, no, no online school, no, um, no instruction um, provided. There were some, you know, you could, you could click around in the difficult to navigate um, Google system and, and try to find um, little packets to, to download. Um, but that's definitely not something that a third grader could access on, on their own. So school was done, um, for that school year. And again, like 2020, 2021, they basically abandoned that school year, um, as well. And so I left, um, I knew that my children have, have, um, special needs. And I, I knew that the school district was not going to, um, prepare them for anything academically. And, and so we enrolled in the state virtual school, but I did plug into a local parent group here in the, in the County that, that fought really hard to try to open schools to no avail and now is trying really hard to hold the, the district accountable for, for learning loss. And they also tried to hold the, the district accountable for the federal emergency spending the millions of dollars that that districts have been receiving in, in federal emergency spending, 190 billion overall across the mm. country, uh, again to no avail because the districts don't care. They're they're going to do what they they want to do. 
Amazing. I mean, it's just, and this is where it kind of goes into it. Less people think it can't get worse, although I think we probably all realize that it can at this point. Um, Jenny, you sent an email to Molly Hemingway and myself uh, about a tweet that Molly posted earlier this week where she said, was trying to find a new practice because at a recent doctor's appointment, a male doctor dressed as a woman asked my daughter if she, quote, identified as female. She replied, no, I am female. Good for her. But if anyone knows of a Northern Virginia practice that's safe and sane, please let me know. Um, And we were talking about the education system. And this isn't to pivot to the medical system at all. It's actually the same thing. Because the medical system, uh, the the funnel, the only funnel, um, there's it's a it's a one way road into medical practice, and that's through our education system, uh, obviously for some good reasons. But the consequences of that are in ideology uh, that has come to capture not just med- the medical industry but many others. Uh, this one, though, for parents, I imagine is particularly concerning. So I'm glad you reached out, Jenny, because I think it's really worth amplifying the voices of parents who have experienced this. Uh, have you seen this yourself uh, in not just Northern Virginia? I'm sure you've heard from other folks around the country at this point, but what, how concerned should parents be about this? Oh, parents should be totally and completely concerned. And it takes a while to, to really realize what's going on. And that's what's happened with the schools, right? We're just now becoming aware of what the schools are teaching, what these books are exposing children to, what these lessons plans drafted by activists are are, are teaching and preaching um, to them, and just how captured these teachers, particularly the, the, the young women having recently come out of, of education um, schools, uh, just how captured they are by, by this ideology when we're talking about gender ideology or um, the desire to, to push trans identity and to pressure children into choosing them. Um, we're just not realizing that with schools. I don't think parents have realized how much they're going to, to be encountering this in all aspects of the medical community in upcoming years. And they've got to, um, they've got to go in eyes open and with a script prepared and with a pushback ready because it's everywhere. And I'm here, Molly's here in Northern Virginia, where a lot of these things tend to start warning you it's coming if it's not already there um, in in the medical providers. So um, Molly's tweet was actually sent to me by Nicole Solis, who uh, works with us at, at IWF and lives in Rhode Island. And she had an experience in, in Rhode Island where her um, pediatrician's practice had slapped on trans activist stickers right at children's eye level in all of the waiting rooms. And so her, uh, I think then five-year-old was asking her to, to read her what the, what the sticker, the colorful um, sticker said. And so Nicole went to go confront the, the practice and say, I'm not comfortable exposing my, my children to, to, the conversations about sex and sexual identity and gender and gender identity at this young age, um, please remove the stickers or, or put me in a, a waiting room that doesn't have one. And the conversation concluded with Nicole being um, kicked out of the practice and mm. forced to find a new pediatrician. So that is a possibility in a state like Rhode Island. Um, that is not necessarily what parents are going to encounter in other places. They should speak up. That's, I feel like, kind of a worst case scenario. Um, but this definitely happens um, everywhere I go in, um, in my area. The pediatric dentist, the orthodontist, the pediatrician, 
um, every therapy practice, they're all captured in this area by, by gender ideology. We talk about internet privacy here all of the time, so most of us know that our internet service provider basically knows literally everything we do online. I mean, it's just true. You might as well be handing your laptop to a stranger and opening up your browsing history. That's why having a VPN is an absolute must every time you go online. I want to tell you now about one of the best VPNs out there and easily one of the most affordable ones I've seen, PIA. PIA stands for Private Internet Access, and they take private privacy seriously. Not only does PIA hide your IP address, it also encrypts your entire connection. This protects your internet activity from everyone, your internet service provider, network admins, or any hackers out there just itching to steal your most sensitive information. PIA is the world's transparent VPN. They never record or store user data, and their no logs policy has even been verified in court. You also get endless entertainment options. Not only does PIA work with all major streaming services, but it's one of the few VPNs that supports P2P file sharing, so you can download just about anything. You can connect to over 83 countries using their world-class servers, and there's a server for every single U.S. state. You get your own dedicated IP address for 100% anonymity. It's available for all platforms across all your devices, and just one membership can protect up to 10 of your devices at the same time. PIA also has over 30 million downloads. See for yourself how it makes browsing so much better. One of the things I I like the most about PIA is what I just said about having this on all of your devices, on all of your different platforms. If you're a techie like me, you probably have too many devices, so it's great that PIA covers all of them. Right now, go to PIAVPN.com slash Federalist to get a whopping 82% off your VPN service, plus four free months with a two-year plan. It comes out to around two bucks a month, and you just can't beat that. And there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's PIAVPN.com slash Federalist for 82 percent off private internet access piavpn.com slash federalist yeah and i was excited to talk about this um maybe excited is the wrong word eager to talk about this because i had a strange experience over the summer um on i, I had an exchange that was on a show i hosted at the time uh, with a pro-abortion activist who referred to pregnant people. And I stepped in and corrected and said pregnant women. Um, And that kind of went viral, turned into a little bit of a scuffle. And I heard from a very trusted physician um, who I knew to be on the right uh, that basically was upset um, and said, we know it's not the case that just, just women can have children can get pregnant. And it was really, again, like a a trusted physician I knew to be on the right. It was a really, really surprising moment. Um, And not as as somebody who's more advanced in their career um, and and very removed from the current educational system. And what I find very frightening um, is not just that this is happening now, but that where we will be in 30 or so years, you know, it can't this stuff will not go away with a so-called vibe shift because it's now deeply embedded in the moral codes of a lot, a lot, a lot of people. And to, to correct that, to change that, I don't know how that happens. I mean, it, it just seems like an incredibly daunting task um, that, you know, when you're looking down the road, not just at right now, but but who is going to be in control of some of these institutions years from now? That's what I find the most frightening. 
Well, it's it's not just who will be controlled uh, and the institution. It's um, <laughs> as a, I'm I'm looking at you know aging over the next couple of decades and wondering what my doctors are going to know about the female body. Mm. You know, like a heart attack in a in a female is different than a heart attack in a male. We know that. I know that. But these younger doctors will and medical professionals will not have been trained in the biological differences between females and males because the captured institutions are not allowed to teach that yeah. there are biological differences between females and males. And that is a, a real a real danger and a and a real risk. And so I just I I, I fear for people as they um, as they age and and uh, and their their current doctors age out of the profession, and these younger doctors come in with with no real knowledge about how to treat a female body versus a, a male body, um, which puts uh, which puts people at at real medical risk. Um, yeah, something absolutely needs to be done. You know, to to give a, a personal example, I have a a neurodiverse daughter with um, with short hair, and so when we were on a um, an online um, like post COVID check, you know, you had to back a few, even a few months ago, you had to get a, a check with the doctor in order to return to, to school. And the nurse practitioner hopped on the line, saw the short hair and immediately started referring to my daughter as they. Um, and when she, um, got off that my daughter left the, the call. I, I spoke with the, the young woman, this new nurse practitioner and said, look, you know, we've been with this practice since she was born almost 14 years like since she was born, why are you doing this? Like, why mm. do you look at a child's short hair and see that maybe they're a little different and immediately go to a they pronoun? Um, and so this young woman, uh, in the the way that that uh, social justice warriors do, uh, immediately said that that she um, she felt uncomfortable and attacked and uh, by me asking her these questions. And so the conversation had to come to an to an end. So of course I look her up and she graduated from university of Virginia, um, mm. in 2019. And so I'm realizing, Oh, she probably like her program probably taught her that there's no other way of thinking about these kinds of things. You see, mm. you know, you, you look at children, you, you, you base their, their pronouns on uh, gender stereotypes and it's, you know, it's, it's morally wrong if, if you're questioned for, for doing that. Um, so, I don't, I don't know what the solution is, Emily. I hope that you do or, or someone, <laughs> someone does, but something needs to be done about these, uh, these nursing and, and medical programs now. Yeah. Yes. Because there's a piece I always think back on uh, that was published on Barry Weiss's Substack. It was written by Katie Herzog, who did a, a fairly deep dive into the politicization of uh, medical schools and the, basically like the profession in general, even hospitals. And one of the really striking cases that Katie highlighted was in an emergency room. There were BLM protesters essentially saying there should not be police allowed in an emergency room. And the police were saying, we are here to protect people from gang members who come back to try to finish the job. Not an uncommon thing. You can save lives by having police officers in emergency rooms. Um, and, and the BLM activists had sort of successfully pushed them out of the emergency room. And this is a good example of how actually the ideology is, is costing lives kind of immediately, like right now, um, people are in danger because of the fealty to this ideology. And the solution, 
it has to be um, starting to, in, in my perspective, and Jenny, I'm curious what you think, because you, you work on this on the policy side and talk to parents all the time, start suing people for sex discrimination, start suing people for race discrimination um, based on certain policies, certain teachings. We've seen this start to be used in in at the education level, um, where curricula or even like corporate HR curricula includes just outright sexist, racist teachings that is taught under the that are being taught under the banner of anti-racism or, or anti-sexism, feminism, whatever it is. Um, the only thing I can think of is lawsuits, and even then, um, lawsuits of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But even then, uh, I, I just have a hard time seeing how we deal with the people who have already sort of been taught to see all of this as uh, the the appropriate moral code. Right. There has to be some sort of mass deprogramming that would go on. Or um, I, again, I, I don't know what to do about the um, these people who have been taught incorrectly in, in medical school and, and nursing school. But um, and I, I'm so glad that you mentioned the Katie Herzog um piece on, on Barry Weiss's Substack. Cause sometimes I, I think things have a life on Twitter and on Substack for a day, maybe three, and then we move on. But that, uh, reporting that she did was incredibly revealing. I had no idea that, uh, these medical students had so much power over their professors. She gave an example, I believe in that piece where, um, to that issue of, of, of using the terminology pregnant people and, and, and not, um, only implying that, that women get, um, get pregnant. Um, the, the medical students like rose up against their professor and then the professor profusely apologized, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like if you are a, a professor at a medical school and you have supposedly smart grown up students attending your classes, you should be able to stand your ground and, and make it clear that there are female bodies and male bodies and that's the deal. And then teach accordingly. Otherwise we're endangering society. So yeah, everyone should read Katie Herzog's, um, substack piece there. It, well, the, the other thing I was going to ask you, Ginny, is you, you mentioned earlier that people need to have a script to prepare for these conversations with doctors. And that seems to me, I think one thing that's powerful, because the powerful thing that uh, brought a lot of this to the fore, uh, that it was sort of lingering in the fringes of academia for decades, you know, coming from folks like Judith Butler um, and on down the line, it was always on the fringes, and when it starts to take off, it's because there becomes a social stigma to not agreeing with it. Well, there should be a social stigma to agreeing with all of these things. And what you mentioned about sort of preparing parents with a script for things they really might not expect. Maybe they don't live in Northern Virginia. Maybe they live in Wisconsin, where the trusted physician I referenced is, um, and they will still be confronted with this stuff. It no longer matters if you're in a red or a blue state because folks around the country have gone through the the state schools, public schools, where all of this stuff is sort of taught as fact. Um, what, what should that look like? Do you have any ideas of uh, how parents sort of tactically, strategically, um, and compassionately can approach these conversations when they're confronted with them? 
Yeah. And, and let's make sure we talk about the lawsuits too, because you're, um, you're absolutely right that the lawsuits have to have to be going forward and they are. And like you said, this isn't just in Northern Virginia. It's not just in California. Parents might think that <laughs> at this point, but one example of a lawsuit right now is in Iowa. Parents Defending Education has um, helped move forward in, in a lawsuit against an Iowa school district that is pushing the gender ideology, pushing the lessons and the pronoun rich in an, an extremely aggressive way. So this ideology is is everywhere. The lawsuits are going to be everywhere. Um, and uh, the, the scripts need to be in place everywhere. And and I think one, one of the challenges that I still have, even though I do live in this particularly like, captured area, is that I'm surprised, um, in part because uh, I've been going to these practices, taking my children there for so long. Um, we had moved away from the area and then moved back in 2015. Okay, so we've been here, we've been back seven years, right? Seven years. <laughs> um, we've been back a long time and um, and either returned to practices that we were at since my children were babies or, um, you know, have been consistently going all these years since twenty the beginning of 2015. But a number, uh, um, but I'm encountering this issue everywhere I go, including at the pediatric dentist just last week. And so I'm still surprised. And I, I think that is the clear message that I want to have out there right now. Um, it sounds like Molly was a little surprised um, by her practice. And Molly knows exactly what's going on with it, with this issue. I'm still surprised. And, and we all need to stop. Like mm. we should, we should, st- we should still be shocked this is happening. This is shocking. This is ridiculous that they're, they're putting this pressure on the, on the children to go through these pronoun rituals, to choose one of the hundred plus gender identities, um, to assume that they're not just male or female, um, to that they're being like, that it's being implied by the dentist, by the orthodontist, by the, by the doctor, by their counselor, it's being implied that they could be a boy, a girl, both or neither. They're, they're, this whole swirl of confusion and pressure is being foisted on our children. So we should be shocked by that, but we should no longer be surprised. This is, this is going to happen um, in your area. It's going to, it could very likely happen to your family. And it's particularly going to happen if you have a child that uh, doesn't conform to gender stereotypes, because so much of this belief system is caught up in stereotypes. So again, um, a child with sensory issues, like a neurodiverse child, probably is going to cut their hair. A girl is going to cut her hair because of the sensory issues. The longer hair is is uncomfortable. And a neurodiverse um, a person is generally um, gender non-conforming, and and therefore the clothing might be different than the stereotypical girl or boy of that particular age. Um, and so parents, particularly of gender non-conforming kids, need to need to be ready um, to either call ahead to their doctor's office and find out who they're going to be seeing that day and what the practices are. Um, uh, and so a, a call ahead might be good to see if there are new people in the practice and if any new rituals have been put in place as a result. Mm. Um, the parent should be prepared in the moment to uh, gently redirect the the person if they're they're suddenly um, asking for pronouns or um, assuming pronouns, and the parent should definitely prepare be prepared to say no 
when they are ordered to step outside of the examination room. That is happening on a widespread basis in my area. And, um, and I'm hearing about it from parents in other areas that the, that the, practitioners want to get the children alone to talk about, and these are young children, to talk about sexual activity, sexual identity, um, and and gender issues out of earshot. And so the parent can just gently say, no, I'm, I'm going to stay put. Um, and, and that get, gets away. And it doesn't have to be a confrontation, right? If you're prepared, there, there doesn't have to be conflict. It's just a gentle no. And then after the fact, so this is before call ahead, um, while you're there, be ready to gently say no or to, to gently rec- uh, redirect if they're um, going through pronoun and other rituals. And then afterwards, if uh, be prepared to, to call the head of the practice, whoever's like in the management ex- um, position, which is what I did for our pediatric dentist, um, to ask, hey, you know, we've been going to your practice since 2015. Has something changed on a policy basis Mm. that now makes you uh, go through this new pronoun ritual, your new dentist that you hired on was doing that. I've never encountered that before. So here's some good news. I was not kicked out of the practice. In fact, the woman said, no, no, no. This is the head of the the practice, the dentist who formed it. No, that's, that's not what we're doing. I'm sorry, I'll address it. So good things can come from, from conversations when you're prepared to have them. This story is unbelievable. Unbelievable until you discover the larger mechanics at play. Last month, the late co-founder of Microsoft, Paul Allen, sold his art collection for the record-breaking sum of $1.6 billion. How, as most other markets and investments struggle, is fine art hitting record highs? Well, because it's got a low correlation to other investments. So when they take losses, your art investments don't have to. Masterworks knows this. That's why they qualify their paintings with the SEC. So you have security while you invest in art on their platform. It's also how Masterworks has been delivering real results this year, selling seven paintings. Their last three sales have delivered 13, 17, and 21% net returns to their investors. As a result, Masterworks even has a wait list, but you can skip it at masterworks.art slash federalist. That's masterworks.art slash federalist. See important Reg A disclosures at masterworks.com slash CD. Oh, that's so interesting and actually a source of a real source of optimism. I was going to say, um, my colleague Kylie Griswold uh, wrote a story this week. Actually, she reported out a story about how uh, Children's Hospital in Wisconsin has hired a clearly like trans activists as the in the chaplain staff and it's another just a good example of how this really does happen absolutely everywhere um kylie wrote the first tip off to new endorps beliefs this is um one of the new chaplains about the sexes was featured prominently on the posters with a proclamation of program pronouns as she her hers and those of her fiance a female who goes by they he and Ginny, the question i want to post to you because i'm not a parent is what the, the the devil's advocate argument that I would anticipate to all of this is uh, people on the left saying, this is just pronouns. It's just 
adults, um, you know, identifying as they want to identify, or it's just adults, you know, giving children the option to identify how they want to identify. We're not talking in this context, you know, we haven't mentioned puberty blockers, we haven't mentioned any surgical interventions. This is all just labels, and it's just optional. Um, what are the dangers, though, from your perspective as a parent of the language? Like if we're just, let's say we're just talking about the language, um, what are the dangers of, of having that so embedded in uh, the medical industry? Well, we know that this is a social contagion, particularly among girls, particularly among uh, children who might not have fit in who and who felt uncomfortable socially and um, feel uncomfortable in their bodies. Um, and um, and so they they grab onto this promise of trans joy. If only I embrace this identity, then I can opt out of girlhood because I never fit in, in in girls. I never knew how to get, navigate the complex world of, of, of girls. So I'm going to opt out of girlhood and I'm going to embrace this identity and I'm going to experience joy. Well, the joy doesn't just come from the pronouns. We know that uh, it doesn't it doesn't stop at that. The the pronoun is in a, 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 the beginning of of the rituals, um, and and then it it leads to this obsessive rumination about um, what identity the child is, and you'll you'll see online um, these these videos of of different. Um, uh, teenagers and, and young adults just kind of cycling through different, different identities. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm poly or I'm, I'm, um, I'm gender fluid or, you know, it's, it's, they, they, they go through all these different, different identities. Um, and unfortunately a lot of the, the individuals who start with the pronouns cycle through their identif- identities still don't find that satisfaction to opting out of girlhood, opting out of girl world didn't bring the trans joy. So they have to move on to the next step. And, um, and the conversations that push them down the next step come when they're presenting their pronouns and their identities. So then the, the people at the school, the people at the medical practices are like, Oh, okay. So you're trans. That must mean that I need to refer you to a gender clinic or a gender therapist, or need to make sure you are aware of the hundreds of planned parenthood clinics who are providing, um, cross sex hormones. And for, for parents, they are, um, pressured to start considering puberty blockers and rituals uh, and um, and hormones for those kids, and unfortunately, um, some some studies have shown that ninety eight percent of the kids who do go on the puberty blockers then go on to the cross sex hormones, becoming potentially lifelong medical patients if they stick with it. And then we know that um, you know, particularly the, the these girls who embrace either um, male gender fluid or non binary identities then go and have their healthy breasts cut off, and what's called top surgery. And then there's other surgeries beyond that. All of these things, puberty blockers, hormones, surgeries have incredible side effects um, and are quite dangerous for, for these individuals when it comes to their mental health. You're putting an emotionally vulnerable young woman on, is it a class three drug testosterone? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a controlled substance. Yeah. Um, that's going to mess with their mental health in a really significant way. Um, and, um, 
And so you're, you're, you're pushing them. Yes, you're starting with pronoun rituals, um, but you're pushing them down this really dangerous, expensive, risky and, and fraught path. And, um, and so it has to stop the pronoun. That's not kind and inclusive. It's destabilizing, it's confusing, and it's dangerous. Right. And it obviously legitimizes uh, this ideology, even if we're just talking about the language, everything you just explained is legitimized by the casual uh, acceptance of this language or the casual sort of um, normalizing of this type of language in a way that I can imagine as a struggling teenager is exacerbating an already painful and, and difficult situation. Uh, Ginny, is there anything else you think is, is relevant, relevant that people should be uh, thinking about in this this context uh, as parents, perhaps as people interested in policy solutions, is there anything we missed in this conversation? Well, I think it's really important if we're if we're talking about the social contagion and the fact that these young adults and these kids are being so pressured by the medical community and the and the teachers um, and all these adults who should be taking care of them but aren't. Um, we need to recognize that um, that the, the that the social contagion could be stopped, not by these adults who've abandoned their responsibilities to, to keep kids safe. But if we get the kids listening to the detransitioners, I don't think that the kids are going to listen to the, to their parents. Like they're in fact, the part of the ideology is to teach them not to listen to their parents. You must mm-hmm. reject your family. If you, if your family is gently questioning this, you must, uh, label everyone as bigoted and transphobic. Um, you must count the days until you can escape this oppressive home life. So I don't think that uh, some parents have been successful, um, in, in watchful waiting and in, and um, pulling their children kind of away from the grips of the, this, this really cult-like men- mentality. Um, but I think that elevating the voices of the detransitioners, these young women and, and young men who have maybe hit their mid-20s, their brains have now developed, they've been through this really awful experience of trying um, to feel better uh, through all these, these hormones and these surgeries, but in fact, it didn't help at all. In fact, it did the opposite. And they're, they're coming out on the other say, side saying, I never want that to happen to anyone else. I think that's who these kids need to listen to. I think the social contagion can be stopped if, if kids listen to youngish voices like these detransitioners. So anything that, that people can do to elevate, uh, elevate their voices. And IWF has a wonderful identity crisis series. Um, our, our wonderful colleague, Kelsey Bolar has uh, produced a series of videos, including a number of videos of, um, young women who are, um, explaining what happened to them and um, making sure that other people know that this should not be happening. They should not have had their breasts cut off. They should not have their voices permanently lowered because of testosterone. They should not be dealing with the emotional trauma of trying to pick up the pieces physically and emotionally after being put down the, um, this path. And I, I think we need to, to make sure we're sharing those identity crisis um, videos and um, empowering parents with them and hoping, hope, hope, hope that um, teenagers and young adults who are, who are captured by this um, will watch them and, and think twice. 
Yeah, I was actually going to mention that um, <clears throat> because I remember there was a, there was a dinner about a month ago um, with IW folks and some of the pe- people featured in the series, and everybody should go take a look at them. That Federalist senior contributor Kelsey Bowler did over with you guys at IWF because it's people that are not just in you know Manhattan, Washington D.C., <laughs> Los Angeles, and are dealing with this either as it relates to their children and their relationships with their children um, or themselves. I mean, people who have gone through this process, um, been sucked into bad internet trends and have suffered and are still suffering because of it and are now brave enough to be speaking out about it, their stories should be amplified and understood. And I do actually think, Jenny, in this whole conversation, as we've been sort of looking to what might be a solution, those stories are solutions because they do stigmatize uh, the the rigid dogma. I mean, if, if there's something that can cultivate a stigma in our society, it is seeing what has happened to people um, who, who sort of got sucked into and affected by the ideology. Those are really powerful stories. They're stories the left doesn't want to tell, even when the left is often so good at storytelling. Uh, these are as powerful as any story that the left latches onto. And, and that I can imagine the more people are aware uh, how this is harming real women, real parents, and and just through you know these these gateways that we've we've talked about. That I have to imagine as a parent, Jenny. Um, say you're not somebody that's plugged into this debate and, and politics in general. That's the kind of thing I imagine would change your mind. For sure, yeah. The power of the stories uh, is it's going to make a big big difference. Yeah, make sure to check that out. Folks, that's at IWF.org. Ginny Gentles, where can people find information about the Education Freedom Center? Um, well, IWF.org slash EFC for Education Freedom Center. We've got our work there. And I have a monthly newsletter, The Defender. I encourage people to sign up for that. And we have a podcast coming, Students Over Systems. So stay tuned for our podcast. Awesome. All right. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Emily. Of course. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Mm-hmm.